When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. What devilry lurks in the shady dive commonly known as the Joy Shop? Sax Romer, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. Making a monthly donation really helps us to create a support flow we can count on. If you can step up with $5 a month, that really helps us out. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter. You'll get a monthly thank you code for any digital download. It's a great deal and a great feeling. Thank you very much. You can also purchase t-shirts and stuff at our merchandise store. And check out the hybrid audiobook, the audiobook that's embedded in a printed book that I've invented and patented. Links can be found in the episode's details. And for those of you with the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Just enough to wet your whistle. In the app, tap on the box with the bow on the left where you play the episode. That's the special features area. Today we continue our series of The Hand of Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. It is the third in the Fu Manchu series, and you can pick up the first two titles at our website for under $8 each. As with last week, and during the run of this series, as you run into objectionable stuff today, feel free to talk about it with your friends. Point out the problems with your kids. Let's see where we were and clean this out of our culture through honest and informed discussion. And now, The Hand of Fu Manchu, Part 2 of 7, by Sax Romer. Chapter 5, John Kai's. What is the meaning of C. Fan? asked Detective Sergeant Fletcher. He stood, looking from the window at the prospect below, at the trees bordering the winding embankment, at the ancient monolith, which for unnumbered ages had looked across desert sands to the Nile, and now looked down upon another river of many mysteries. The view seemed to absorb his attention. He spoke without turning his head. Nayland Smith laughed shortly. The sea fan are the natives of eastern Tibet, he replied. But the term has some other significance, sir, said the detective. His words were more of an assertion than a query. It has, replied my friend grimly. I believe it to be the name, or perhaps the sigil, of an extensive secret society with branches stretching out into every corner of the Orient. We were silent for a while. Inspector Weymouth, who sat in a chair near the window, glanced appreciatively at the back of his subordinate, who still stood looking out. Detective Sergeant Fletcher was one of Scotland Yard's coming men. He had information of the first importance to communicate, and Nayland Smith had delayed his departure upon an urgent errand in order to meet him. "'Your case to date, Mr. Smith,' continued Fletcher, remaining with hands locked behind him, staring from the window. "'Read something like this, I believe.' A brass box, locked, contents unknown, has come into your possession. It stands now upon the table there. It was brought from Tibet by a man who evidently thought that it had something to do with the sea fan. He is dead, possibly by the agency of members of this group. No arrests have been made. You know that there are people here in London who are anxious to regain the box. You have theories respecting the identity of some of them, but there are practically no facts. Nayland Smith nodded his head. Exactly, 
he snapped. Inspector Weymouth here, continued Fletcher, has put me in possession of such facts as are known to him, and I believe that I have had the good fortune to chance upon a valuable one. You interest me, Sergeant Fletcher, said Smith. What is the nature of this clue? I will tell you, replied the other, and turned briskly upon his heel to face us. He had a dark, clean-shaven face, rather sallow complexion, and deep-set, searching eyes. There was decision in the square, cleft chin, and strong character in the cleanly chiselled features. His manner was alert. "'I have specialised in Chinese crime,' he said. "'Much of my time is spent amongst our Asiatic visitors. I am fairly familiar with the Easterns who use the port of London, and I have a number of useful acquaintances among them.' Nayland Smith nodded. Beyond doubt, Detective Sergeant Fletcher knew his business. "'To my lasting regret,' Fletcher continued, "'I never met the late Dr. Fu Manchu. "'I understand, sir, that you believe him to have been a high official of this dangerous society. "'However, I think we may get in touch with some other notabilities. "'For instance, I'm told that one of the people you're looking for "'has been described as the man with the limp.' "'Smith?' who had been about to relight his pipe, dropped the match on the carpet and set his foot upon it. His eyes shone like steel. The man with the limp, he said, and slowly rose to his feet. What do you know of the man with the limp? Fletcher's face flushed slightly. His words had proved more dramatic than he had anticipated. There's a place down Shadwell Way, he replied, of which, no doubt, you will have heard. It has no official title, but it is known to habitués as the Joy Shop. Inspector Weymouth stood up, his burly figure towering over that of his slighter confrère. I don't think you know John Kyes, Mr. Smith, he said. We keep all those places pretty well patrolled, and until this present business cropped up, John's establishment had never given us any trouble. What is this Joy Shop? I asked. "'A resort of shady characters, mostly Asiatics,' replied Weymouth. "'It's a gambling-house, an unlicensed drinking-shop, and even worse. "'But it's more use to us open than it would be shut. "'It is one of my regular jobs to keep an eye on the visitors to the joy-shop,' continued Fletcher. "'I have many acquaintances who use the place. "'Needless to add, they don't know my real business. "'Well, lately—' Several of them have asked me if I know who the man is that hobbles about the place with two sticks. Everybody seems to have heard him, but no one has seen him. Nayland Smith began to pace the floor restlessly. I have heard him myself, added Fletcher, but never managed to get so much as a glimpse of him. When I learnt about this sea fan mystery, I realised that he might very possibly be the man for whom you're looking and a golden opportunity has cropped up for you to visit the joy shop, and, if our luck remains in, to get a peep behind the scenes. I am all attention, snapped Smith. A woman called Zami has recently put in an appearance at the joy shop. Roughly speaking, she turned up at about the same time as the unseen man with the limp. Nayland Smith's eyes were blazing with suppressed excitement. He was pacing quickly up and down the floor, "'tugging at the lobe of his left ear. "'She is different in some way "'from any other woman I have ever seen in the place. "'She's a Eurasian, "'and good-looking after a tigerish fashion. "'I've done my best,' he smiled slightly, "'to get in her good books, "'and up to a point I've succeeded. "'I was there last night, "'and Zami asked me if I knew what she called a strong fella. "'These,' she informed me, contemptuously referring to the rest of the company, are poor, weak Johnnies. I had nothing definite in view at the time, for I had not then heard about your return to London, but I thought it might lead to something anyway, so I promised to bring a friend along tonight. I don't know what we wanted to do, but count on me, snapped Smith. I will leave all details to you and to Weymouth, and I will be at New Scotland Yard this evening in time to adopt a suitable disguise. Petre? He turned impetuously to me. I fear I shall have to go without you, but I shall be in safe company, as you see, 
and doubtless Weymouth can find you a part in his portion of the evening's programme. He glanced at his watch. Ah, I must be off. If you will oblige me, Petrie, by putting the brass box into my smaller portmanteau, whilst I slip my coat on, perhaps Weymouth, on his way out, will be good enough to order a taxi. I shall venture to breathe again once our unpleasant charge is safely deposited in the bank vaults. Chapter 6 The Sea Fan Move A slight, drizzling rain was falling, as Smith entered the cab which the hall porter had summoned. The brown bag in his hand contained the brass box, which actually was responsible for our presence in London. The last glimpse I had of him through the glass of the closed window showed him striking a match to light his pipe, which he rarely allowed to grow cool. Oppressed with an unaccountable weariness of spirit, I stood within the lobby looking out upon the greyness of London in November. A slight mental effort was sufficient to blot out that drab prospect and to conjure up before my mind's eye a balcony overlooking the Nile, a glimpse of dusty palms, a white wall overgrown with purple blossoms, and above all the dazzling vault of Egypt. Upon the balcony my imagination painted a figure, limning it with loving details, the figure of Caramana, and I thought that her glorious eyes would be sorrowful, and her lips perhaps a little tremulous, as her arms resting upon the rail of the balcony, she looked out across the smiling river to the domes and minarets of Cairo, and beyond, into the hazy distance, seeing me in dreary, rain-swept London as I saw her, at Gezira, beneath the cloudless sky of Egypt. From these tender but mournful reflections, I aroused myself. Almost angrily, I set off through the muddy streets towards Charing Cross, for I was availing myself of the opportunity to call upon Dr. Murray, who had purchased my small suburban practice when, finally, as I thought at the time, I had left London. This matter occupied me for the greater part of the afternoon, and I returned to the new Louvre Hotel shortly after five, and seeing no one in the lobby whom I knew, proceeded immediately to our apartment. Nayland Smith was not there, and having made some changes in my attire, I descended again, and inquired if he had left any message for me. The booking clerk informed me that Smith had not returned. Therefore I resigned myself to wait. I purchased an evening paper, and settled down in the lounge, where I had an uninterrupted view of the entrance doors. The dinner hour approached, but still my friend failed to put in an appearance. Becoming impatient, I entered a call-box and rang up Inspector Weymouth. Smith had not been to Scotland Yard nor had they received any message from him. Perhaps it would appear that there was little cause for alarm in this, but I, familiar with my friend's punctual and exact habits, became strangely uneasy. I did not wish to make myself ridiculous, but growing restlessness impelled me to institute inquiries regarding the cabman who had driven my friend. The result of these was to increase rather than to allay my fears. The man was a stranger to the hall-porter, and he was not one of the taximen who habitually stood upon the neighbouring rank. No one seemed to have noticed the number of the cab. And now my mind began to play with strange doubts and fears. The driver, I recollected, had been a small, dark man, possessing remarkably well-cut, olive-hued features. Had he not worn spectacles, he would indeed have been handsome, in an effeminate fashion." I was almost certain by this time that he had not been an Englishman. I was almost certain that some catastrophe had befallen Smith. Our ceaseless vigilance had been momentarily relaxed, and this was the result. At some large bank branches there is a resident messenger. Even granting that such was the case in the present instance, I doubted if the man could help me. Unless, as was possible, he chanced to be familiar with my friend's appearance, and had actually seen him there that day. I determined at any rate to make the attempt. Re-entering the call-box, I asked for the bank's number. There proved to be a resident messenger, who, after a time, replied to my call. He knew Nayland Smith very well by sight, and as he had been on duty in the public office of the bank at the time that Smith should have arrived, he assured me that my friend had not been there that day. 
Besides, sir, he said, you say he came to deposit valuables of some kind here. Yes, yes, I cried eagerly. I take all such things down on the lift to the vaults at night, sir, under the supervision of the assistant manager, and I can assure you that nothing of the kind has been left with us today. I stepped out of the call box unsteadily. Indeed, I clutched at the door for support. What is the meaning of C-Fan? Detective Sergeant Fletcher had asked that morning. None of us could answer him. None of us knew. With the haze seeming to dance between my eyes and the active life in the lobby before me, I realized that the C-Fan, that unseen sinister power, had reached out and plucked my friend from the very midst of this noisy life about me into its own mysterious, deathly silence. Chapter 7 Chinatown It's no easy matter, said Inspector Weymouth, to patrol the vicinity of John Kai's joy shop without their getting wind of it. The entrance, as you'll see, is a long, narrow rat-hole of a street running at right angles to the Thames. There's no point, so far as I know, from which the yard can be overlooked, and the back is on a narrow cutting belonging to a disused mill. I paid little attention to his words. Disguised beyond all chance of recognition, even by one intimate with my appearance, I was all impatience to set out. I had taken Smith's place in the night's programme. For every possible source of information having been tapped in vain, I now hoped against hope that some clue to the fate of my poor friend might be obtained at the Chinese den, which he had designed to visit with Fletcher. The latter, who presented a strange picture, in his make-up as a sort of half-caste sailor, stared doubtfully at the inspector. Then, "'The river police cutter,' he said, "'can drop down on the tide and lie off under the Surrey bank. There's a vacant wharf facing the end of the street, and we can slip through and show a light there to let you know we've arrived.' You reply in the same way. If there's any trouble, I shall blaze away with this. He showed the butt of a service revolver protruding from his hip pocket. And you can be ashore in no time. The plan had one thing to commend it, namely, that no one could devise another. Therefore it was adopted, and five minutes later a taxicab swung out of the yard containing Inspector Weymouth and two ruffianly-looking companions myself and Fletcher. Any zest with which, at another time, I might have entered upon such an expedition, was absent now. I bore with me a gnawing anxiety and sorrow that precluded all conversation on my part, save monosyllabic replies to questions that I comprehended but vaguely. At the River Police Depot, we found Inspector Ryman, an old acquaintance, awaiting us. Waymond had telephoned from Scotland Yard, "'I've got a motor-boat at the breakwater,' said Ryman, nodding to Fletcher and staring hard at me. Weymouth laughed shortly. "'Evidently you don't recognize Dr. Petrie,' he said. "'Eh?' cried Ryman. "'Dr. Petrie? Why, good heavens, doctor! I should never have known you in a month of bank holidays. What's afoot, then?' And he turned to Weymouth, eyebrows raised interrogatively. "'It's the Fu Manchu business again, Ryman.' "'Fu Manchu—' I thought the Fu Manchu case was off the books long ago. It was always a mystery to me, never a word in the papers, and we as much in the dark as everybody else. But didn't I hear that the Chinaman Fu Manchu was dead? Weymouth nodded. Some of his friends seem to be very much alive, though, he said. It appears that Fu Manchu, for all his genius, and there's no denying he was a genius, Ryman, was only the agent of somebody altogether bigger. Ryman whistled softly. Has a real head of affairs arrived, then? We find we are up against what is known as the Sea Fan. At that it came to the inevitable, unanswerable question. What is a Sea Fan? I laughed. But my laughter was not mirthful. Inspector Weymouth shook his head. Perhaps Mr. Nayland Smith could tell you that, he replied. For the Sea Fan got him today. "'Got him?' cried Ryman. "'Absolutely. He's vanished, and Fletcher here has found out that John Kai's place is in some way connected with this business.' I interrupted impatiently, I fear. 
"'Then let us set out, Inspector,' I said, "'for it seems to me that we are wasting precious time, "'and you know what that may mean.' "'I turned to Fletcher. "'Where is this place situated exactly? "'How do we proceed?' "'The cab can take us part of the way,' he replied, "'and we shall have to walk the rest. "'Patrons of John's don't turn up in taxis as a rule.' "'Then let us be off,' I said, and made for the door. "'Don't forget the signal,' Weymouth cried after me. "'and don't venture into the place until you've received our reply.' "'But I was already outside, Fletcher following, "'and a moment later we were both in the cab "'and off into a maze of torturous streets "'toward John Kai's joy shop. "'With the coming of nightfall the rain had ceased, "'but the sky remained heavily overcast "'and the air was filled with clammy mist. "'It was a night to arouse longings for southern skies.' And when, discharging the cabman, we set out afoot along a muddy and ill-lighted thoroughfare, bordered on either side by high brick walls, their monotony occasionally broken by gateways, I felt that the load of depression which had settled upon my shoulders must ere long bear me down. Sounds of shunting upon some railway siding came to my ears. Train whistles and fog signals hooted and boomed. River sounds there were, too, for we were close beside the Thames, that grey old stream which has borne upon its beer many a poor victim of underground London. The sky glowed sullenly red above. "'There's a joy shop along on the left,' said Fletcher, breaking in upon my reflections. "'You'll notice a faint light. It's shining out through the open door. Then here is the wharf.' He began fumbling with the fastenings of a dilapidated gateway beside which we were standing, and a moment later, "'All right,' "'Slip through,' he said. "'I followed him through the narrow gap "'which the ruinous state of the gates had enabled him to force, "'and found myself looking under a low arch, "'with the Thames beyond, "'and a few hazy lights coming and going on the opposite bank. "'Go steady,' warned Fletcher. "'It's only a few paces to the edge of the wharf.' "'I heard him taking a box of matches from his pocket. "'Here is my electric lamp,' I said. "'It will serve the purpose better.' "'Good,' muttered my companion. "'Show a light down here, so we can find our way.' "'With the aid of the lamp we found our way out on the rotting timbers of the crazy structure. "'The mist hung denser over the river, "'but through it, as through a dirty gauze curtain, "'it was possible to discern some of the greater lights on the opposite shore. "'These, without exception, however, showed high up upon the fog curtain.' Along the water level lay a belt of darkness. "'Let me give them the signal,' said Fletcher, shivering slightly and taking the lamp from my hand. He flashed the light two or three times. Then we both stood, watching the belt of darkness that followed the Surrey shore. The tide lapped upon the timbers supporting the wharf, and little whispers and gurgling sounds stole up from beneath our feet. Once there was a faint splash from somewhere below and behind us. "'There goes a rat,' said Fletcher vaguely, and without taking his gaze from the darkness under the distant shore. "'It's gone into the cutting at the back of John Kai's.' He ceased speaking and flashed the lamp again several times. Then all at once out of the murky darkness into which we were peering looked a little eye of light, once, twice, Thrice it winked at us from low down upon the oily water, then was gone. "'It's Weymouth with the cutter,' said Fletcher. "'They are ready. Now for John Kai's.' We stumbled back up the slight acclivity beneath the archway to the street, leaving the ruinous gates as we had found them. Into the uninviting little alley immediately opposite we plunged, and where the faint yellow luminance showed upon the muddy path before us, Fletcher paused a moment, whispering to me warningly. "'Don't speak if you can help it,' he said. "'If you do, mumble any old jargon in any language you like, and throw in plenty of cursing.' He grasped me by the arm, and I found myself crossing the threshold of the joy shop. I found myself in a meanly furnished room, no more than twelve feet square and very low-ceilinged, smelling strongly of paraffin oil. The few items of furniture which it contained were but dimly discernible in the light of a common tin lamp which stood upon a packing-case, 
at the head of what looked like cellar steps. Abruptly I pulled up, for this stuffy little den did not correspond with preconceived ideas of the place for which we were bound. I was about to speak when Fletcher nipped my arm, and out of the shadows behind the packing case a little bent figure arose. I started violently, for I had had no idea that another was in the room. The apparition proved to be a Chinaman, and judging from what I could see of him, a very old Chinaman, his bent figure attired in a blue smock. His eyes were almost invisible amidst an intricate map of wrinkles which covered his yellow face. "'Evening, John,' said Fletcher, and pulling me with him, he made for the head of the steps. As I came abreast of the packing-case, the Chinaman lifted the lamp and directed its light fully upon my face. Great as was the faith which I reposed in my make-up, a doubt and a tremor disturbed me now, as I found myself thus scrutinized by those cunning old eyes, looking out from the mask-like, apish face. For the first time the Chinaman spoke. "'You bring a friend, Charlie?' he squeaked in a thin, piping voice. "'Him play piece card,' replied Fletcher briefly. "'Good fellow. Plenty much money.' He descended the steps, still holding my arm, and I perforce followed him. Apparently John's scrutiny and Fletcher's explanation respecting me, together, had proved satisfactory, for the lamp was replaced upon the lid of the packing-case, and the little bent figure dropped down again into the shadows from which it had emerged. "'Ally, lady!' I heard faintly, as I stumbled downward in the wake of Fletcher. I had expected to find myself in a cellar, but instead discovered that we were in a small square court, with the mist of the night about us again. On a doorstep facing us stood a duplicate of the lamp upon the box upstairs. Evidently this was designed to indicate the portals of the joy-shop, for Fletcher pushed open the door, whose threshold accommodated the lamp, and the light of the place beyond shone out into our faces. We entered, and my companion closed the door behind us. Before me I perceived a long, low room, lighted by flaming gas-burners, the jets hissing and spluttering in the draught from the door, for they were entirely innocent of shades or mantles. Wooden tables, their surfaces stained with the marks of countless wet glasses, were arranged about the place, café-fashion and many of these tables accommodated groups, of nondescript nationality for the most part. One or two there were in a distant corner who were unmistakably Chinamen, but my slight acquaintance with the races of the East did not enable me to classify the greater number of those whom I now saw about me. There were several unattractive-looking women present. Fletcher walked up the centre of the place, exchanging nods of recognition with two hang-dog poker-players, and I was pleased to note that our advent had apparently failed to attract the slightest attention. Through an opening on the right-hand side of the room, near the top, I looked into a smaller apartment, occupied exclusively by Chinese. They were playing some kind of roulette, and another game which seemed wholly to absorb their interest. I ventured no more than a glance, then passed on with my companion. "'Fan Tan,' he whispered in my ear. Other forms of gambling were in progress at some of the tables, and now Fletcher silently drew my attention to yet a third dimly-lighted apartment, this opening out from the left-hand corner of the principal room. The atmosphere of the latter was sufficiently abominable. Indeed, the stench was appalling, but a wave of choking vapour met me as I paused for a moment at the threshold of this inner sanctuary. I formed but the vaguest impression of its interior— the smell was sufficient. This annex was evidently reserved for opium smokers. Fletcher sat down at a small table nearby, and I took a common wooden chair, which he had thrust forward with his foot. I was looking around at the sordid scene, filled with a bitter sense of my own impotency to aid my missing friend, when that occurred which set my heart beating wildly at once with hope and excitement. Fletcher must have seen something of this in my attitude, for— "'Don't forget what I told you,' he whispered. "'Be cautious. Be very cautious.'" Chapter 8 Zami of the Joy Shop 
Down the center of the room came a girl carrying the only ornamental object which thus far I had seen in the joy shop, a large oriental brass tray. She was a figure which must have formed a center of interest in any place, trebly so then in such a place as this. Her costume consisted in a series of incongruities, whilst the entire effect was barbaric and by no means unpicturesque. She wore high-heeled red slippers, and as her short, gauzy skirt rendered amply evident, black silk stockings. A brilliantly coloured oriental scarf was wound around her waist and knotted in front, its tasseled ends swinging girdle fashion. A sort of chemise, like the anterie of Egyptian women, completed her costume, if I accept a number of barbaric ornaments, some of them silver, with which her hands and arms were bedecked. But strange as was the girl's attire, it was to her face that my gaze was drawn irresistibly. Evidently, like most of those around us, she was some kind of half-caste, but unlike them, she was wickedly handsome. I use the adverb wickedly with deliberation, for the pallidly dusky, oval face with the full red lips between which rested a large yellow cigarette, and the half-closed almond-shaped eyes possessed a beauty which must have appealed to an artist of one of the modern perverted schools, but which filled me less with admiration than horror, for I knew her. I recognized her from a past brief meeting. I knew her beyond all possibility of doubt to be one of the Seafan group. This strange creature, tossing back her jet-black frizzy hair, which was entirely innocent of any binding or ornament, advanced along the room toward us, making unhesitatingly for our table, and carrying her lithe body with the grace of a gazier. I glanced at Fetcher across the table. Zami, he whispered. Again I raised my eyes to the face which was now close to mine, and became aware that I was trembling with excitement. Heavens! Why did enlightenment come too late? Either I was the victim of an odd delusion, or Zami had been the driver of the cab in which Nayland Smith had left the new Louvre Hotel. Zami placed the brass tray upon the table, and bent down, resting her elbows upon it, her hands upturned, and her chin nestling in her palms. The smoke from the cigarette, now held in her fingers, mingled with her dishevelled hair. She looked fully into my face, a long, searching look. Then her lips parted in the slow, voluptuous smile of the Orient. Without moving her head, she turned the wonderful eyes, rendered doubly luminous by the coal with which her lashes and lids were darkened, upon Fletcher. "'What you and your strong friend drinking?' she said softly. Her voice possessed a faint, husky note, which betrayed her eastern parentage. It had had in it the siren lure— which is the ancient heritage of the Eastern woman, a heritage more ancient than the tribe of Gazia, to one of whom I had mentally likened Zami. Same thing, replied Fletcher promptly, and raising his hand he idly toyed with the huge gold earring which she wore. Still resting her elbows upon the table and bending back down between us, Zami turned her slumbering, half-closed black eyes again upon me, then slowly, languishingly, upon Fletcher. She replaced the yellow cigarette between her lips. He continued to toy with the earring. Suddenly the girl sprang upright, and from its hiding-place within the silken scarf plucked out a melee kris with a richly jewelled hilt. Her eyes now widely opened and blazing, she struck at my companion. I half rose from my chair, stifling a cry of horror, but Fletcher, regarding her fixedly, never moved and Zami stayed her hand, just as the point of the dagger had reached his throat. "'You see,' she whispered softly but intensely, "'how soon I can kill you.' Ere I had overcome the amazement and horror with which her action had filled me, she had suddenly clutched me by the shoulder, and turning from Fletcher, had the point of the criss at my throat. "'You too,' she whispered. "'You too.' Lower and lower she bent, the needle-point of the weapon pricking my skin, until her beautiful, evil face almost touched mine. Then, miraculously, 
The fire died out of her eyes. They half-closed again and became languishing, luresome, gazia eyes. She laughed softly, wickedly, and puffed cigarette smoke into my face, thrusting her dagger into her waist-belt and snatching up the brass tray. She swayed down the room, chanting some barbaric song in her husky eastern voice. I inhaled deeply and glanced across at my companion. Beneath the make-up with which I had stained my skin, I knew that I had grown more than a little pale. Fletcher, I whispered. We are on the eve of a great discovery. That girl— I broke off, and clutching the table with both hands, sat listening intently. From the room behind me, the opium room, whose entrance was less than two paces from where we sat, came a sound of dragging and tapping. Slowly— Cautiously, I began to turn my head, when a sudden outburst of simian chattering from the fantan players drowned that other sinister sound. "'You hear it, doctor?' hissed Fletcher. "'The man with the limp,' I said hoarsely. "'He is in there. Fletcher, I am utterly confused. I believe this place to hold the key to the whole mystery. I believe—' Fletcher gave me a warning glance, and turning anew— I saw Zami approaching with her sinuous gait, carrying two glasses and jug upon the ornate tray. These she set down upon the table, then stood spinning the salver cleverly upon the point of her index finger and watching us through half-closed eyes. My companion took out some loose coins, but the girl thrust the proffered payment aside with her disengaged hand, the salver still whirling upon the upraised finger of the other. "'Presently you pay for drink,' she said. "'You do something for me, eh?' "'Yes,' replied Fletcher nonchalantly, "'watering the rum in the tumblers. "'What time?' "'Presently I tell you. "'You stay here. "'This one a strong fellow?' "'Indicating myself. "'Sure,' drawled Fletcher. "'Strong as a mule he is.' "'All right. "'I give him one little kiss if he good boy.' Tossing the tray in the air, she caught it, rested its edge upon her hip, turned, and walked away down the room, puffing her cigarette. Listen, I said, bending across the table. It was Zami who drove the cab that came for Nayland Smith today. My God, whispered Fletcher, there was nothing less than the hand of Providence that brought us here tonight. Yes, I know how you feel, Doctor. But we must play our cards as they are dealt to us. We must wait. Wait. Out of the den of the opium smokers came Zami, one hand resting upon her hip and the other uplifted, a smouldering yellow cigarette held between the first and second fingers. With a movement of her eyes, she summoned us to join her, then turned and disappeared again through the low doorway. The time for action was arrived. We were to see behind the scenes of the joy shop. Our chance to revenge poor Smith, even if we could not save him. I became conscious of an inward and suppressed excitement. Surreptitiously I felt the hilt of the browning pistol in my pocket. The shadow of the dead Fu Manchu seemed to be upon me. God, how I loathed and feared that memory. We can make no plans, I whispered to Fletcher, as together we rose from the table. We must be guided by circumstance. In order to enter the little room, laden with those sickly opium fumes, we had to lower our heads. Two steps led down into the place, which was so dark that I hesitated momentarily, peering about me. Apparently some four or five persons squatted and lay in the darkness about me. Some were crouched upon rough wooden shelves ranged around the walls. Others sprawled upon the floor, in the centre whereof, upon a small tea-chest, stood a smoky brass lamp. The room, and its occupants alike, were indeterminate, sketchy. Its deadly atmosphere seemed to be suffocating me. A sort of choking sound came from one of the bunks. A vague, obscene murmuring filled the whole place revoltingly. Zami stood at the further end, her lithe figure silhouetted against the vague light coming through an open doorway. I saw her raise her hand, beckoning to us. Circling around the chest, supporting the lamp, we crossed the foul den, 
and found ourselves in a narrow, dim passageway, but in cleaner air. Come, said Zami, extending her long, slim hand to me. I took it, solely for guidance in the gloom, and she immediately drew my arm about her waist, leant back against my shoulder, and raising her pouted red lips, blew a cloud of tobacco smoke fully into my eyes. Momentarily blinded, I drew back with a muttered exclamation. Suspecting what I did of this tigerish half-caste, I could almost have found it in my heart to return her savage pleasantries with interest. As I raised my hands to my burning eyes, Fletcher uttered a sharp cry of pain. I turned in time to see the girl touch him lightly on the neck with the burning tip of her cigarette. "'You jealous, eh, Charlie?' she said. "'But I love you, too. See. Come along, you strong fellows.' And away she went, along the passage, swaying her hips lithely, and glancing back over her shoulders in smiling coquetry. Tears were still streaming from my eyes when I found myself standing in a sort of rough shed, stone-paved, and containing a variety of nondescript rubbish. A lantern stood upon the floor, and beside it, the place seemed to be swimming around me, the stone floor to be heaving beneath my feet. Beside the lantern stood a wooden chest, some six feet long, and having strong rope handles at either end. Evidently the chest had but recently been nailed up. As Zami touched it lightly with the pointed toe of her little red slipper, I clutched at Fletcher for support. Fletcher grasped my arm in a vice-like grip. To him, too, had come the ghastly conviction, the gruesome thought that neither of us dared to name. It was Nayland Smith's coffin that we were to carry. Through here came dimly to my ears, and then I'd tell you what to do. Coolness returned to me, suddenly, unaccountably. I doubted not for an instant that the best friend I had in the world lay dead, there at the feet of the hellish girl who called herself Zami, and I knew, since it was she, disguised, who had driven him to his doom, that she must have been actively concerned in his murder. But, I argued, although the damp night air was pouring in through the door, which Zami now held open, although the sound of Thameside activity came stealing to my ears, we were yet within the walls of the joy-shop, with a score or more Asiatic ruffians at the woman's beck and call. With perfect truth, I can state that I retain not even a shadowy recollection of aiding Fletcher to move the chest out onto the brink of the cutting, for it was upon this that the door directly opened. The mist had grown denser, and except a glimpse of slowly moving water beneath me, I could discern little of our surrounding. So much I saw by the light of a lantern which stood in the stern of a boat. In the bows of this boat I was vaguely aware of the presence of a crouched figure, enveloped in rugs, vaguely aware that two filmy eyes regarded me out of the darkness. The man who looked like a lasker stood upright in the stern. I must have been acting like a man in a stupor, for I was aroused to the realities by the contact of a burning cigarette with the lobe of my right ear. Hurry, quick, strong fella, said Zami softly. At that it seemed as though some fine nerve of my brain, already strained to utmost tension, snapped. I turned, with a wild, inarticulate cry, my fists raised frenziedly above my head. You fiend! I shrieked at the mocking Eurasian. You yellow fiend of hell! I was beside myself, insane. Zami fell back a step, flashing a glance at my own contorted face to that, now pale even beneath its artificial tan, of Fletcher. I snatched the pistol from my pocket, and for one fateful moment the lust of slaying claimed my mind. Then I turned towards the river, and raising the browning, fired shot after shot in the air. "'Weymouth!' I cried. "'Weymouth!' A sharp hissing sound came from behind me, a short, muffled cry, and something descended, crushing upon my skull. Like a wild cat, Zami hurled herself past me and leapt into the boat. One glimpse I had of her pallidly dusky face, of her blazing black eyes, and the boat was thrust off into the waterway, was swallowed up in the mist. 
I turned, dizzily, to see Fletcher sinking to his knees, one hand clutching his breast. She got me, with the knife, he whispered. But don't worry. Look to yourself and him. He pointed weakly, then collapsed at my feet. I threw myself upon the wooden chest with a fierce, sobbing cry. Smith! Smith! I babbled, and knew myself no better in my sorrow than an hysterical woman. Smith, dear old man, speak to me! Speak to me! Outraged emotion overcame me utterly, and with my arms thrown across the box, I slipped into unconsciousness. Chapter 9 Fu Manchu Many poignant recollections are mine, more of them bitter than sweet, but no one of them all can compare with the memory of that moment of my awakening. Weymouth was supporting me, and my throat still tingled from the effects of the brandy which he had forced between my teeth from his flask. My heart was beating irregularly, my mind yet partly inert. With something compound of horror and hope, I lay staring at one who was anxiously bending over the inspector's shoulder, watching me. It was Nayland Smith. A whole hour of silence seemed to pass, ere speech became possible. Then, Smith, I whispered, are you? Smith grasped my outstretched, questing hand, grasped it firmly, warmly and I saw his grey eyes to be dim in the light of the several lanterns around us. "'Am I alive?' he said. "'Dear old Petrie, thanks to you, I am not only alive, but free!' My head was buzzing like a hive of bees, but I managed, aided by Weymouth, to struggle to my feet. Muffled sounds of shouting and scuffling reached me. Two men in the uniform of the Thames police were carrying a limp body in at the low doorway communicating with the infernal joy-shop. "'It's Fletcher,' said Weymouth, noting the anxiety expressed in my face. "'His missing lady friend has given him a nasty wound, but he'll pull round all right.' "'Thank God for that,' I replied, clutching my aching head. "'I don't know what weapon she employed in my case, but it narrowly missed achieving her purpose.' My eyes throughout were turned upon Smith, for his presence there still seemed to me miraculous. "'Smith,' I said, "'for heaven's sake, enlighten me. I never doubted that you were—' "'In the wooden chest,' concluded Smith grimly. "'Look!' He pointed to something that lay behind me. I turned, and saw the box which had occasioned me such anguish. The top had been wrenched off, and the contents exposed to view.' It was filled with a variety of gold ornaments, cups, vases, silks, and barbaric brocaded raiment. It might well have contained the loot of a cathedral. Inspector Weymouth laughed gruffly at my surprise. "'What is it?' I asked, in a voice of amazement. "'It's the treasure of the sea fan, I presume,' rapped Smith. "'Where it has come from, and where it was going to, it must be my immediate business to ascertain.' "'Then you—' I was lying, bound and gagged, upon one of the upper shelves in the opium den. I heard you and Fletcher arrive. I saw you pass through later with that she-devil who drove the cab today. Then the cab? The windows were fastened, unopenable, and some anaesthetic was injected into the interior through a tube, that speaking tube. I know nothing further, except that our plans must have leaked out in some mysterious fashion. Petri. My suspicions point to high quarters. The Seafan score thus far, for unless the search now in progress brings it to light, we must conclude that they have the brass coffer. He was interrupted by a sudden loud crying of his name. Mr. Nayland Smith! came from somewhere within the joy shop. This way, sir! Off he went, in his quick, impetuous manner, whilst I stood there, none too steadily, wondering what discovery this outcry portended. I had not long to wait. Out by the low doorway comes Smith, a grimly triumphant smile upon his face, carrying the missing brass coffer. He set it down upon the planking before me. John Kai, he said, who was also on the missing list, had dragged the thing out of the cellar where it was hidden, and in another minute must have slipped away with it. 
Detective Deacon saw the light shining through a crack in the floor. I shall never forget the look John gave us when we came upon him. As lamp in hand, he bent over the precious chest. Shall you open it now? No. He glanced at me oddly. I shall have it valued in the morning by Messrs. Meyerstein. He was keeping something back, I was sure of it. Smith, I said suddenly. The man with the limp. I heard him in the place where you were confined. Did you? Leland Smith clicked his teeth together sharply, looking straightly and grimly into my eyes. I saw him, he replied slowly. And unless the effects of the anaesthetic had not wholly worn off. Well, I cried. The man with the limp is Dr. Fu Manchu. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Hand of Fu Manchu, Part 2 of 7, by Sax Romer. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.